0: Alright, uh Joshua. <clears throat> Joshua chapter six. Um, I wanna I wanna begin by <clears throat> giving some introductory uh some some review. I haven't been here for two weeks. I haven't even preached on Joshua yet. It feels like we've already been studying Joshua for a while. I haven't even gotten to to, to teach on it yet. Um so I wanna review some of the things that uh that Billy has said, uh, laid down in his teachings that we've hopefully been listening to and catching up with, um, primarily this, that, that there's two ways to, there's other ways, but there's, there's, there's two ways that he was highlighting, I think are important for us to, to highlight, two ways of reading this conquest, of applying, what what is this war, what does this warfare have to do uh, with us? And... There's two angles that uh, that Billy put forth. and I think it's very wise. Uh, he's lived with this book a long time. Uh, I can remember some of the very first teachings that I heard um, from Billy were from the book of Joshua. I think uh, a number of times we went through the book of Joshua in this room when I was in like 8th grade, ninth grade in Mars Hill Chapel. Um, so, actually, I think I... Uh, I think we actually even translated it in my Latin class, the the Vulgate in Joshua. It was Joshua, Joshua, Joshua. I just remember so much Joshua in my my teens. Uh, But the two angles are this. One is that the battle has to do with uh, Jesus gaining mastery over all of us as individuals, over every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our hearts, of putting to death all the final, all the last bits of, of sin and rebellion in our hearts. Uh, so that we are wholly His. Okay? So it's really Jesus' um, warfare to claim us as His inheritance. We are Jesus' inheritance,? Right? Many sons and daughter, many sons and daughters. Uh, but then the other angle is, we, Jesus leads us out into the world, okay? to, to possess a land that He has called us to possess. And that land, for each of us, looks a little bit different. He's, he's called us to possess a land as a church. We have land. We have uh, territory that he has called us to, gain, to, to, to inherit in the spirit. Okay? As we go out and we preach the gospel, as we bring people into the family of God, as we bring the life of the family of God out into the workplace, out into, uh, into our city, we are claiming territory for the Lord. All right, So it's not a military conquest. It's a spiritual battle. Uh, but we are sent out into the world to do warfare, uh, to displace. Uh, it says that the, to Peter, uh, Jesus says, You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? And you can read that, uh, and, and I read it a long time, embarrassingly long time, as that, like, Satan can't attack me. Right? But gates don't go anywhere. Gates don't come and attack you. Right? What is a gate? It's a, it's a stationary wall. And it means that we are assaulting the gates of hell. That we are waging war and tearing down uh, the gates of hell, hell. And they will not prevail against the advance of the army of the Lord. All right? um, so those, those two angles with which to, to kind of interpret the, the warfare that's going on in Joshua. Um, <clears throat> so we come to Joshua Joshua 6. And also remember the outline. Chapter 1 is the prologue. 2 through 5 are preparation for warfare. 6 through 12 are actually engaging in warfare. And then 13 through the end are dividing the land, allotting the inheritance to the the tribes of Israel. Um, So we come to chapter 6 tonight, and really the section on engaging in warfare should begin for us at the end of chapter 5, which is when what happens? The commander of the army of the Lord appears. Okay? Warfare hasn't begun until the commander of the army of the Lord appears. Okay? It is now time to do battle. It is now time to do warfare. And so we cannot under, under-emphasize this part, and I just want to read it. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked... And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. (laughs) Let's get this out of the way. All right. Your, Your dichotomy, your agenda, your strategy is not the strategy. Okay. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And he says, And I am here. I have come. And really, that's all we need to know as uh, the army of God. That the commander of the Lord has come, right? And his sword is drawn. And remember, uh, well, let me get to that in a second. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? That's the right way to start the battle. (laughs) Falling on our face before the commander of the army of the Lord and say, what do you say? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. for The place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And it's a very tragic chapter break here, because if you just begin in chapter six, you don't realize that the person giving the instructions on how to attack Jericho is this guy, the commander of the army of the Lord with the sword drawn. OK, this is the continuance of the conversation. All right. So really, we need to start at the end of chapter five there. Um, so he gives instructions on how to attack Jericho. Um, he is not for them or for the enemies, but he is here and he has instructions. I I, I want us to recall one of the descriptions of Jesus from Revelation, where it says he has a, this, he says he has a sword coming out of his mouth, which is an odd, an odd picture. Um, this kind of sounds like David Blaine or something. Um. One of those sword-swallowing things. No, there's a sword coming out of his mouth. And this is this com- the commander of the army of the Lord. He's standing there with a sword drawn. And what does he do? He speaks instructions. All right? This is how God leads his people into battle. He gives them instructions. The directions from the commander of the Lord's army are very specific. Okay? They take up like a whole chapter. There's this whole strategy of... And no one could come up with this strategy, right? It's a little bit preposterous, okay? Um, If humans were planning this battle, you could, you know, look at any number of ancient warfare texts and figure out the most effective way to besiege a city, right? And, And none of them include marching around it once per day for six days, and then on the seventh day marching around it six times and yelling really loud. That does not appear in any sort of military text, right? Only here in the Bible, right? We have exclusive information on how to besiege a city. What's the the point here? Because that had nothing to do with human power or military might. And everything to do with the fact that it says this. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Right? (laughs) The battle's already won. It's done. I have given Jericho into your hand. All right? There's nothing you can do or need to do to conquer Jericho. It's done. All right? Now, do this little parade, <laughs> and, then, and then we'll see the walls come down. What's the, what's the deal here? The battle, the battle, it's not really a battle, No one would call this a battle, but this is the first act of warfare. The battle is just an exercise in obeying God. The Lord's commander has the sword drawn. What do the people have? Well, they have feet to walk and voices to shout. There's no weapons mentioned on the people. And they have a few priests with ram's horns and the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Um, So the battle here is just, I've given it now. Are you going to obey? Are you going to obey? Um, The instructions include this. Joshua commanded the people, verse 10, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. The instructions are to remain quiet. That's the first part of it. The first step in conquest, in our conquest, in our warfare, is staying quiet and falling in line. That's the first step. In being and rising up and being the warrior that God wants you to be, shut up and line up. (laughs) Right? And wait for further instructions. And when they are to shout, because this is, this is why. When they are to shout, they are to all shout in unison and as one. Can you imagine if everyone just decided when the best time to shout would be? Ah! Mm. Woo! Right? There's nothing mighty or terrifying or glorious about that. But when the trumpets sound and all the people of God this roar, Right? and then the walls come down. That's the people of God. right? That's the hearts of the people of Jericho melting and quaking. The warfare of the people of God can be described as follows. Extended periods of obedient restraint followed by moments of unified boldness. That's how the people of God wage war. Extended periods of Of obedient restraint, waiting, being quiet, listening, awaiting further instruction, obeying in the meantime, staying in line, getting up early, walking around, being quiet, right? Rhythms, routines, diligence, discipline, followed by moments of unified boldness. Okay, wait, stay calm, discipline, everybody keep going. Everybody keep doing, it's day four. We still got two more days of this. What is this even going to do, right? Can't we, like, cut off their supply line or bring out some trebuchets or something? No, nope. go walk around. How about some, some boiling tar? You know, that seems to work in movies. No, nope. walk around. Okay, now. And then it's done. And the, the warfare has ended. Right? This, is what the, this is how the people of God wage war. This is what church life looks like. Just quiet. Do what you need to do. Paul, Paul says, you know, pray for that, that you may live peaceful and godly lives, dignified in every way. But then he also says, fight the good fight. Right? And be ready in season and out. All right? So you Wait. And you wait till the time and then you, you shout you, you shout with boldness. And nobody holds back and everybody goes all at once. Right? And that's the strength of the people of God. So it's odd warfare odd warfare. Right? And it really has everything to do with listening to and responding to and being perfectly uh, compliant with the voice of God and the instruction of God. And that is the victory of the people of God. I have given Jericho into your hand. Now walk with me and you will see that victory come, manifest itself. Amen? that yeah, good. <clears throat> uh, at the end of chapter 6, Rahab, uh, they're faithful to their promise to Rahab. Okay, and this is one time in Joshua. Next week we'll talk about, I'm really only going to get to 6 through 8 tonight. Um... We're going to keep talking through. We have the whole month of February for Joshua. Um, we're going to keep talking through. All right. So we won't need to rush this, especially this section. I think it's, it's crucial. Um, but they're faithful to their promise to Rahab. And then later on in chapter nine, they actually make a promise with the Gibeonites. They're duped into making a promise with the Gibeonites. But they remain faithful to it anyway. Right. So even under less desirous circumstances than Rahab's Embrace of, of Yahweh, the, the God of the Israelites, they still are showing faithfulness and trustworthiness to the people of the land. Uh, okay. Chapter 7, the placement after the, the fight of Jericho is very important here. Okay. And you really need to read Jericho and the battle of Ai, the battle of Ai, uh, together. This is one unit. This is one big uh, lesson that God is teaching His people. Verse one introduces a piece of information that is crucial to the whole story to follow. Um, It it changes the way you read the whole account of what's going on in Joshua's uh, Joshua's desperation. Okay, but it says this: the people of Israel broke faith. All right, so obedience, 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 and when you go in, don't take anything. Right? Destroy it all. Nobody take anything. Nobody claim any any plunder for yourself. Right? Devote it all. Bring it all to the treasury of the Lord, it says. But this one guy, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. A couple things to note here. One guy, this very particular guy, identified by his grandfather and all the, you know, they know exactly who it is. It says, the people broke faith when this one guy did this. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people because the individual did something. That's sobering. So, you know the anger of God has burned against his entire people because one person did something. Do you ever wonder if the anger of God has burned against this church because you did something? Do you, do you connect the fact that your actions, your private actions, affect the people of God, affect the way God thinks about the people of God? So, that happens. Joshua sends men. All right, let's do it again. We'll send out spies. And this is w- what we did before, right? Let's follow the same game plan. We'll send out spies. They come back, and they go, <laughs> just, all we need is a few guys, right? Don't, don't muster everyone. They're a, little bit, they're a little bit arrogant here, right? Oh, we'll take it. Well, they go, and they get, they get spanked. 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarib. The gates of hell prevailed against them, right? And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. I mean, this is great grief, the great defeat, okay? And Joshua said... And this is, this is surprising to me, knowing Joshua. I mean, Joshua's a great guy, right? He's a faithful man. But his response echoes some of the faithless and the complaining responses of the Israelites in the wilderness, right? It's the same formulation. He says, why have you brought this people over the Jordan? I mean, you could just replace it with over the Red Sea. To give us into the hands of the Amorites, To destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. (laughs) Let's go back to wherever that was. Before it was Egypt. Now it's just the wilderness across the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before the enemies? The Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? God, your glory is gonna is at, at stake. You, what are you gonna do? And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. What? Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? <laughs> I love this. And he just says, Oh, it's uh someone sinned. Israel has sinned. Right? Joshua's having an existential crisis. And God says, what in the world? If, it, Duh! Somebody sinned! They transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. I said, don't. And they did. It's not hard to grasp. It doesn't take lying on your face all till sundown to understand what has transpired. I said don't and they did. Right? This is an obvious thing. Get up. Sometimes we need to hear this. Get up. You know what's wrong. Go fix it. They turn their backs to the enemies because they have been devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. There's been a disobedience, and until you rectify it, we're not going to continue any further. Okay? This is not complicated. Go fix it. And then we'll then we'll then we'll continue. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. I'm not going to budge on that one. I said it was a rule, and I'm consistent, okay? So let's just go and let's abide by the rule. So they go and they have this kind of a miraculous thing where where they identify who it was by lot, right? I'm thankful that they don't have lots anymore that, that do this. I mean... Okay, somebody has sinned in here. <laughs> Flannery, all right? Somebody has sinned in the Flannery family. Kate. We're always putting Ben down, as in the Flannery guys. Sometimes we got to rag on Kate. So Achan is identified, and Joshua said to Achan, My son, give... Glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Another way of translating it, it's the same word for confess. Make your confession. ESV has a footnote, and I think in King James it actually says, Give confession to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, I want to spend some time talking about talking about this. This is really the primary section I want to I talk about tonight. <clears throat> um, there's three points on Achan here. Number one, his sin was covetousness, which I think in, in God's divine wisdom, is the perfect, I mean, of all the sins that, that could have been the cause for the Lord's anger against Israel, it's covetousness, unfortunately for us. Because it happens to be like the most relatable sin in the Old Testament. Like, oh, he worshipped Molech. Oh, phew. I've never worshipped Molech, and I never <laughs> planned to. It's good, doesn't apply to me. But he coveted a beautiful cloak. No. There's no escaping this. And money. Oh, man. Covetousness is rooted in our desires. Okay? Coveting is desiring something that you don't have. And it's directed toward what I, what I desire. It's, it's, it, it's oriented toward me. So co- Coveting for me, not everybody covets the same thing, right? We all covet different things. Why? Because coveting is relative to our own desires, what I want for me. This beautiful cloak from Shinar appealed to Achan. Ooh, it caught his eye. It wouldn't have caught everyone's eye, but it caught his eye. Covetousness is explicitly linked in the New Testament to idolatry. Which you could call idolatry the major sin of the Old Testament. The primary sin of the Old Testament. Okay? Everything all right? Oh she's snoring. (laughs) Ava is all of us. We'll get through this together. She got it this morning That's right. That's right. It um, Colossians 3. Colossians 3. It's a great chapter. Uh, start in verse 5. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is the New Testament. <laughs> it's really a <sawing> sign. <laughs> In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. All right, so we often have this false idea that, oh, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Well, here's the New Testament God. Covetousness is the same as idolatry, and God, it, he, his wrath is coming because of it. And also note the attitude that Paul says we are to have toward covetousness. Put it to death. Put it to death. So, to kind of fill out an idea of what covetousness is for us, um, here's sort of a working definition. Fulfilling your own desires, contrary to the clear commands of God, and or at the expense of the people around you. All right? Fulfilling your own desires, contrary to the clear commands of God, and or at the expense of the people around you. In the Ten Commandments, when it talks about covetousness, it says don't covet your neighbor's ox, wife, slave, anything, right? Because it's not yours. Don't want it. Don't desire it. Um, Also, a side note, the Lord's Prayer has a built-in anti-coveting line. Thy will be done. My will be done means I see it, I want it, I get it. Thy will be done means I see it, I want it, I ask God about it, and I do what He says. (laughs) Right? Okay, so covetousness. That was His sin. He saw it, He wanted it, He took it. And then He, and also I would say, He buried it. He, 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 he shoved it down deep, right? It went, literally went into underground in his house, right? And we don't have to use highly symbolic imagination to understand that that's clearly talking about us in our hearts, right? In our homes, in the private parts of our home, in the ground, underneath the dirt in our house. That's where he stashed the objects of his desire. That's where we stash the objects of our desire. In a place where no one else can see. And they're just there under the floorboards in our heart. Number two. So, covetous Achan's sin was covetous. Number two, though he is indeed severely punished, and I'll talk about that in a second. I mean, it's very severely punished, and his family, and his animals. Achan should be applauded for his example of confession. Right? Confession. And what is confession? Confession is not just saying I've sinned. Confession is naming sin. Saying what a thing is. And this is the proper way out of sin. Confession is the first step. If repentance is turning and walking toward God, confession is the first step step of repentance. It's the first step away from sin toward God. Confession says what a thing is. You call it what it is. And I love Aiken's example of confession. Could it be any more clear? I wanted it. I took it. This is what I took. And this is why I took it. And I hid it. He doesn't leave anything out. He doesn't mince any words. He doesn't explain or justify anything. He confesses. He says what it is. All right. The, the, the Greek word is homo logos. Homo is the same. Logos, word. <laughs> it's the same. You just say the same thing. You say what it is. What you say aligns with reality. Call it what it is. Some Old Testament scriptures on confession. Aiken's Achan's experience, Aiken's Achan's punishment—I'm going to talk about it in a second because I think it's a picture of atonement, right? Um, his experience after confession is not what—it's not the normative uh, experience in Scripture of what it points to as confession. Here's some other verses on confession: uh, Psalm thirty-two, five. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Whoever conceals, right? A, Achan was concealing. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. All right, on into the New Testament, James five sixteen. I don't even really need to go there, but I will. 516, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay, what do we keep seeing as the, as the, uh, the result of confession? Mercy, uh, forgiveness, healing, okay? All very good things. 1 John 1, 9, It says, uh, confess your sins. Uh, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession. If we say what it is, just go ahead and say what it is. Which is something we hate to do. Just say what it is. Call it what it is. Confession, mercy, forgiveness, healing, cleansing. There's a pretty convincing case to be made for confession. I'm going to talk about that more once we get to the end. Uh, The third thing about Achan. So I love his example of confession. I love his, uh, well, his sin was covetousness, which is absolutely a sin that is relevant to us. Uh, But the third thing is that um, I think the story speaks some of the atonement. The idea that, um, so here's, I think, what we can read in his punishment. It's not typical in Scripture of those who humbly confess sin. Right? Typically in Scripture, when those who humbly confess sin, we've just read all these Scriptures. right? There's mercy, there's forgiveness. Even in the Old Testament, it says mercy, forgiveness. Okay? David receives forgiveness from the Lord. The consequences were still there, but the Lord forgave his iniquity, as he says in the psalm. Uh, But it shows us, this story shows us how seriously God takes sin, okay? How seriously he has to take sin. It also shows us that, and stick with me here, locating sin in a person and dealing with it in that person is a means by which God can once again deal mercifully with the rest of the people who had all come under God's wrath because of this person's sin. This should set off some gospel of Jesus alarms in you. Locating sin in one person, dealing with sin in that one person, so that he can justly extend mercy to the, to the people who had all come under his wrath because of that sin. Right? Let me just uh, explicitly give you a, a scripture here to, to bring it full circle. Romans 8. Romans 8.3 For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In Jesus God condemned sin punished sin dealt with sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Okay? So the story of Achan shows us how God can find the source of sin in a person and punish that person, and because he has done that, be able to extend mercy without watering down justice, without going back on his commands. And this is what the atonement means for us. That if we confess our sin to God, he doesn't have to take us away like Achan and deal with us like that. He can say, I forgive you because I took my own son away and all sin was heaped on him and he was buried under stones, right? And sin was condemned in the flesh. So God's forgiveness doesn't mean that he ignores sin. When we are forgiven by God, it's because he has killed his own son to deal with sin, right? So it's never a free exchange. It's costly exchange. God has, has paid the cost. Okay? So Achan's punishment really needs to show us what God has to do when sin comes into the people of God and what he has done on our behalf in Jesus. Amen? That's what we deserve. We deserve to be under that pile of rocks so that the rest of the people can be forgiven. When we bring sin into the people of God, that's what we deserve. That's what we need to confess and acknowledge that we deserve and then thank God that he's able to forgive us and extend mercy to us. And we have to be gripped by that, the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of of the cost of it. All right. um, Real quickly in chapter 8, and then I want to give some some nudges and some application of this. Chapter eight, uh, they, now it's time, sin's been dealt with. And he, he says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Beautiful. I've dealt with it. See, your existential crisis a little while ago. No, you're still the same guy. I'm still the same God. The job's still the same. Remember, be strong and courageous. Yeah, don't fear. I'm with you always. Yeah, that's still the same. Do not fear. Don't be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai, and here's the difference. I've given it to you. Right? you got to wait till you hear that from God. I have given it to you. Why? Because our fighting doesn't do anything. We don't wage war according to the flesh. Our little fighting doesn't do anything. It's useless. The enemy is stronger than us. He said back in Deuteronomy, their nation's more mighty than you. And you've got to keep that in your mind. Your victory is not your victory. It's my victory. Okay? We just say it. All authority, all every victory is yours. I love that song. What a great declaration. The fight that you've called me to fight, victory is already yours. I have just to obey the sword that has come out of your mouth. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, and you shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and its king. Now listen to this. Only its spoil and livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. could <laughs> just had to wait. Not the Jericho plunder. But there is plunder at, at Ai. Right? How, is it, how foolish is covetousness? Right? You got a whole cities where the plunder? Awaiting the next city. Don't do it here, and there we go. All the plunder, take it for yourselves. Um, the other point I'd, I'd make about chapter eight is the tactics are awesome, right? And it's they fake weakness, right? Go show a few guys again. Make them think that this is just the same as before, and they're all going to come out, and then thousands of you are going to go into the city and burn it, right? And plunder the whole city. Um, it's feigning weakness to get the enemy to overcommit, become overconfident, and overexpose themselves. And I like this because I think this is God's tactic uh, in defeating Satan. Right? Did Jesus feign weakness, get Satan to bite, and then show how the whole city is now up in flames? Right? You, you left yourself entirely exposed. Right? By committing to kill Jesus in the flesh, the whole city is now going up in flames. Right? God loves to <clears throat> get the enemy to overexpose themselves by appearing weak according to the flesh. But in reality, this is the very thing that's going to undo the enemy. I like those tactics. Right? I think they speak of God's tactics and his warfare with the enemy. All right. <clears throat> so some applications. Number one, the most important aspect of warfare is knowing for sure what God has given into our hand. We don't decide where to wage war. We go wage war where God says, I've given this into your hand. And if we don't know this, we need to wait until we do. Do not attack. Do not put together a strategy. Do not go. Until you hear God say, up, for I have given, fill in the blank, into your hand. Now, I'll say, there's a lot about, there's a lot of things that we know from Scripture that he has given into our hand. Victory over our flesh. Up, for I have given you victory over your flesh. But that doesn't mean that we go and wage war with our flesh according to the, our own strength. It means we go and obey what he says about how to overcome the flesh. You see this pattern of warfare? I've given, into your, I've given you victory over sin. So I'm going to try really hard because God's... No, you can't win the victory. You never could. God has won the victory. And so what do we need to do? Trust him, obey him, do exactly what he says, and watch the city fall. Not according to our own efforts, but according to the power of God. Orders come from the commander of the army of the Lord Jesus. What we know he commands us is what we know he has given into our hand. How do we know what God has given into our hand? By what he tells us to do. Does that make sense? Go love each other. What we need to hear is, I have given that into your hand. I've won the victory. I've made everything possible. So go do it. Our agenda and our strategy is irrelevant. Okay? Are you for us or for our enemy? No. (laughs) But, as the commander of the army of the Lord, here I am. You ready to listen? You ready to obey? Now go. All right? So that's the first thing. That's the first... uh, The most important aspect of warfare is knowing for sure what God has given into our hand. And his commands let us know what he has given into our hand. All right? Um, number two, if we experience victory in one battle, do not coast or let up for the next one. Do not coast or let up in the next one. Their, their arrogance, well, it was arrogance at worst, and um, ignorance... At best, right? Oh, just send a few thousand guys. Because we're playing by regular earthly tactics here. No, all you did was walk around the city. <laughs> Clearly, different tactics are at play, right? Don't think in terms of earthly. Eh, yeah, let's say. Oh, well, yeah, I can do this. No, don't think about that. Don't don't become self reliant. If you experience victory in one battle, figure out what God has miraculously won, and then go do the next one. Not in your own strength. Number three, if we experience defeat, if we experience defeat, first look for obvious sin or disobedience. Then go fall on your face in exasperation and despair. You hear that? You've got to get the order right. If you experience defeat, back up and say, did God tell me to do something that I didn't do? Oh. Well, then I need to get off my face and go fix that thing. Okay? First, look for obvious sin or disobedience. And then if there's no obvious sin or disobedience, then go fall on your face in in exasperation or despair. In other words... I think you'll always find the culprit. Nine out of ten times. Right. Now, there are periods of, of intense suffering, of stress, of, of grief. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about defeat. Where you go out, you march out against an enemy, and you just get whooped. Man, I said I was going to be more patient, and... Whew, what happened? I knew God wanted to be more patient. He gave me the marching orders, and then I set off, and... Just thud. What happened? You don't turn to God and say, why have you called me to do all these hard things? This is going to be impossible. You should have just let me live in the worldly state that I was in, in the immature state that I was in. No. What use is this? No, we're going to get better. No. Just look for obvious sin. So many times, the the, the answer is obvious. You can get off your face. Fix it. Move on. This set you free. Get off your face. Fix the sin, and get it, and move on. <laughs> just do, I mean we, we, we grind over these things. Just ugh. no, just go for it. Number four, we need to be on guard against covetousness. We have to be on guard against covetousness, and particularly against hiding the objects of our coveting deep within our heart. Achan buried them where he, even could, he couldn't even see them. <laughs> what good is the garment when it's buried in the dirt? I don't know, but at least I have it. You see what I'm saying? He buried it. He knew it was wrong, and he buried it so far down, I don't even, he wasn't even enjoying the garment, but he wanted to have it. That's so true about the objects of the, what we What we covet. We know it's wrong, and we don't even enjoy it. Really, when we're honest with ourselves, I don't. En- I don't enjoy this. It's you know this is the sixth piece of pizza, and I don't even taste it anymore. Wow. Right? But don't. I, but I want it. Okay. See what I'm saying? We bury it so far down. So, in other words, don't pretend. Don't pretend you don't love the world. Or your flesh, or your sin, don't pretend it's not there. Okay? Confess it. I, and, and I love Aiken's. I saw it, I really liked it, and I took it, and I buried it in my house. It's kind of embarrassing. Right? But what, what good is it in the dirt of your house? What, what are you doing? Right? It's a nice coat. You shouldn't have buried it in the dirt. I believe that in struggling with sin, we give the enemy way too much credit. The problem is often that we live too much in our own head and we bury our our pretty straightforward sins, we bury them just deep down. It's pretty straightforward. I wanted it, so I did it. But we bury it under layers of justification and rationalization And we don't even recognize what the thing is anymore. It's just there in the deep in the dirt in our heart. And it's causing the wrath of God (laughs) to come on our lives and causing victory to cease. And everything comes to a screeching halt because this thing is just lodged in our hearts. And we stuff things so far down, it takes a search warrant and a SWAT team to come and drag them out. Right? Oh, yeah, it's there. But one thing that struck me this week about Achan, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this and meditating, this really stood out to me. So I think God wants to speak to us here. When pressed, when he got pressed, when, when the, the leader of the people of God looked him in the face and said, what did you do? Just don't hide it from me. Right? We're talking about the same God that we just threw lots and you're here now? All right? We'll find it out if you don't say. Right? When pressed... Aiken listed out a perfectly lucid explanation of the process that led him to, to disobeying God, and he had perfect clarity about himself. And I think a lot of us have perfect clarity about ourselves, but we bury it in the dirt. We know exactly what the problem is. We want it, so we took it. We didn't like it, so we didn't do it. Whatever the answer is. For example, I think this happens in marriage all the time. Um, The worst fights are about the stupidest things. Everybody experienced that? 44 years, you ever experienced that? Biggest fights are about the dumbest things. They start so small. We know exactly what's going on inside of us right at the beginning. We know what's going on. I don't want to be wrong. That's about all it is. I don't want to give in I don't want to give in to that but you bury that deep inside I say you I bury that deep inside of me and you refuse to say what it actually is you don't confess even to yourself you bury it in the dirt so you can't even see it it's covered in dirt rationalization justification Um, I was reading this this week as, as these thoughts are going on in my head I have this book. I got check this book out. It's kind of I've seen several reviews of it. It's one of those self help books, uh, how to get better as a person books, um, called Atomic Habits. You heard of it? It, it? A lot of people are quoting it. I, I went and checked it out with JP. He went to the library with me. It's a very wholesome moment between us. <laughs> Going to the library together. <laughs> It says this. So this is one of his... He's not even talking about this, but this, this just stuck out to me. And I was like, this is, this is exactly it. This is confession. The Japanese railway system is regarded as one of the best in the world. If you ever find yourself riding a train in Tokyo, you'll notice that the conductors have a peculiar habit. As each operator runs the train, they proceed through a ritual of pointing at different objects and calling out commands. When the train approaches a signal, the operator will point at it and say, signal is green. As the train pulls into and out of each station, the operator will point at the speedometer and call out the exact speed. On the platform, other employees are performing similar actions. Before each train departs, staff members will point along the edge of the platform and declare, all clear. Every detail is identified, pointed at, and named aloud. This process, as a name of course, and name everything. Known as pointing and calling. <laughs> Very creative name. It's a safety system designed to reduce mistakes. It seems silly, but it works incredibly well. Pointing and calling reduces errors by up to 85% and cuts accidents by 30%. Pointing and calling is so effective because it raises the level of awareness From a non-conscious habit to a more conscious level, many of our failures in performance, he sums up the the point of the the illustration. Many of our failures in performance are largely attributable to a lack of self-awareness. I I was like, pointing and calling. That's it. (laughs) That's confession. You say what it is. And you just get it out, you verbalize it. And that just cuts through all of the, 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 the dirt that we bury ourselves in. <clears throat> so, um, something to try. This, I would suggest trying this. In, in moments of clear temptation, or, or clear, you're, you're aware that this is, I shouldn't be doing this. In moments of clear temptation or a struggle to obey, say out loud exactly what the struggle is. Just to yourself, even. See, I, we struggle with confession to one another. I don't even know if we know how to confess to ourselves. And admit to ourselves what's actually going on. Okay, sometimes there's a barrier. We're scared of confessing to each other. I don't even know if we know how to confess to ourselves. Aiken at least knew. I wanted it and I took it. That's about it. Would that we had such clarity about our own hearts, about our own desires. Theological issues related to the priesthood aside, the Catholic ritual of confession I think is very valuable. (laughs) I like that. I like the idea of that. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. I did this and this and this. That's healing, restorative, coming to an awareness, being able to verbalize exactly what the issue is in your heart and just saying it brings that flood of mercy and everything else in. And it just, everything came to a screeching halt at AI and everything proceeded after that. It was just that one thing got stuck in the, stuck in the dirt, that object of the desire. And it was called out, named, dealt with. And all the people got to move on after that. The whole thing could continue. Right? It was a coat and some pocket change. Brought the whole army to a halt. So obviously, and a caveat, we can't self-help our way out of sin. All right? That's not what I'm advocating. Uh, And yes, if we sin we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? And he hears our confession, right? That's right in that First John verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But I think we could all do very well to raise our level of awareness of our own desires and covetousness by just verbalizing it, by, by, by walking in a lifestyle of confession. I really think we over-psychologize and we get so much, we live so much in our own heads That if he would just simply say, I just want to eat food right now. I just don't want to be wrong right now. That could bring life to you. And that's it. That's it. That's all you got to do. Yep. You got it. All right. Now, forgiveness can come because Jesus has been crucified for that sin. And now God can say, yeah, okay, I am just waiting for you. I didn't want to hear it. I wanted to hear it from your mouth. I didn't want you to hide anything. I didn't need to know it, because I already know it, says God. You need to know. You need to verbalize and own up to it. Say what it is and move on. So, uh, say what it is. Follow Achan's example. And then receive the mercy and the grace that's available Because of uh, the sacrifice that Jesus, because he bore our sins in his body as God condemned sin in the flesh. And we can choose to follow the commands of God because of that. Amen? Um, So I wanted to do communion at the end. For obvious reasons. You know, communion is often a time where we need to examine ourselves and say what it is. Say what it is. I liked sports this week on a few occasions. Then I liked that more than I liked God. That's all it was. You're not struggling. God's not far away from you. You're not in defeat. You're not doomed. He just wanted something a little more than God. So say that. And be free of it. Leave it. Leave it under a pile of rocks. Leave it at the foot of the cross. And, go and walk, move forward with the people of God into the land that he's called you to take. Amen? Amen. Um, so, let's do that. Let's let God examine our hearts. I've been, I've been meditating on this along with this, this psalm along with uh, my study this week. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Like it or not, God is acquainted with all your ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. Lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. He moves on uh, a little further on. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Everything inside of me that is not of you, I hate it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What a great life. What a great prayer. Don't don't draw back from God because you're afraid of what he's going to find out about you. He already knows it. The person who needs to, to fess up to it is you. The person who needs to hear it is you. Because you need to know it's a, it's a simple equation. Right? And God can come and deal with the consequences of that. He can deal with it. He can forgive you. And he can set you in a way that is right. And because of that, your desires then become more and more oriented toward him. Amen.